Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast brought to you by our friends at Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. And today, I am very pleased to say we have Stephen Forster on the show, and we'll be talking about his book that he co-authored with Andrew Lowe, In Pursuit of the Perfect Portfolio, The Stories, Voices, and Key Insights of the Pioneers Who Shaped the Way We Invest. It's out from Princeton University Press in August, just very, yes, it's out this month, um, or uh, yeah, in August, so that's great. Um, Steve, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Marshall. Uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a few words about yourself? Sure. I'm a finance professor at the Ivy Business School at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. And for our American listeners, London, Ontario is roughly between Buffalo and Detroit. Uh, I'm a Canadian. Uh, I got my PhD from University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School and later a chartered financial analyst designation. And I do research and teach uh, in the area of capital markets and investments. Uh, that is, uh, I find that very interesting. I I have a number of friends who started their careers as people that worked in finance and then became academics. And then I have friends who were academics and then went into finance. And, you know, one of the things I'd like to say about the book, and as a historian, I think I can say this with some assurance, is that this is a particularly modern issue, how to invest your assets, because now we have assets. I mean, I told you in the pre-interview, I studied the 16th and 17th century, and then very few people had assets. There were no asset classes. People didn't really have to worry about these kinds of things. I say have to worry, get to worry about these kinds of things, because retirement was not an issue, uh, nor were the kind of uh, complexities that are involved in managing your assets. I have assets, and I pay someone like you or my friend to manage them. And I, I have a little bit of experience with it, but now it's kind of entered popular culture because so many Americans have 401ks or some sort of retirement instrument. I, I think I can say with some assurance that the um, pension has gone by the way of the dodo, at least it has in the United States. I don't know about Canada, but so it's a very timely book and I'm sure that the listeners will be interested in what you have to say. Also, I should say, as I am duty bound to do, we are not giving financial advice. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> so don't take any this to the bank or anywhere else. <laughs> All right. Why, <clears throat> why did you write the book and what were you hoping to accomplish with it? Sure. It, this goes back, actually, uh, it's been a long process. It goes back uh, about a decade. Um, the original the original reason was I, I had a sabbatical coming up and was looking for an idea of something to do during my sabbatical. The last time I had uh, a year off of teaching, I wrote a textbook, and that was okay. Um, not too exciting to write a, a, a textbook. So uh, I had this idea to write something that would be more more practical. And, and I thought that by looking at um, uh, how academics and practitioner research contributed to this search for the perfect portfolio might be a, a great topic. So that was sort of the, the, the genesis. And um, shortly afterwards, I, I reached out to uh, my, my co-author, Andrew Lowe, we had known each other for uh, for a long time, since the mid-80s. In fact, I was a, a PhD student at Wharton uh, in the very first PhD course that uh, that Andrew taught. So that was a, a real pleasure, pleasure, and we stayed in touch over the years. And I uh, pitched the idea to him, and he uh, immediately thought it was a great idea and, uh, and got on board. So um, what we really hope to accomplish is... Uh, I think a number of things. One is is really telling a story, telling the story of what we call modern portfolio theory. And and really what that refers to is really just a framework for investing. And it's really the foundation of what we now think of as as almost the entire investment industry as as we know it. Um, And and back to your your, question. Perspective on uh, on assets uh, and um, the fact that we we now have assets to to worry about and retirements to plan for that was another um, objective that we that we hope to accomplish is to um, 
inform investors about their own portfolios and, and hopefully they'll be in a better position to manage their own portfolios uh, after reading the book. Yes, the whole idea of a portfolio is a kind of modern invention. And I, I didn't really realize until I, that I had one until I talked to the people that managed my my money. And I'd also say in a kind of editorial way is that all of many of us who have assets are in a very weird position in the sense that we invest in various instruments, equities or land or gold or whatever class it is. But usually we don't know anything about these things. And, you know, for example, I'm sure that I'm invested in a hundred American or international companies. I don't know anything about those companies. So the amount of trust that we put in the people who design the portfolio theory is incredible. Uh, they're, they're a very important group of people. And, and, and that's a great perspective. And, and that's really where modern portfolio theory um, brought us from this whole notion of just um, trusting your broker to pick a number of stocks that appear to be hot stocks versus <laughs> coming up with uh, a, a systematic way to, to think about a portfolio and to think about expected return and risk. And that's really the key. Yeah, yeah, that is that is that is the key, and we'll get to that in a second. How long did it take you to put the book together, and and how did you approach the research and the interview process? One question that I had is, how did you get all these people to talk to you? Because they're sometimes hard to get. We tried. That's, uh, those, those, those are those are great great questions. So, um, as I mentioned, it, it was a ten year process. Now, now we, uh, Andrew and I, haven't devoted our entire past 10 years to this book. So it's been sort of uh, on and off, but it started back in uh, 2012. And, and really the the door opener was uh, securing an interview with uh, with Harry Markowitz, who was really the, the founder of, of modern portfolio theory. Um, how did we, how did we get access to these, uh, these, these luminaries? Well, I can tell you um, it, it's, it's not easy for, um, people like myself even to just uh, pick up the phone or know where to even email these people. Um, but that's where having a uh, well-respected and well-connected co-author in Andrew Lowe, <laughs> that's, where, that's where that helps. Uh, Andrew, Andrew knew all of these people personally, uh, but more than, than that, and, and I, uh, the, the only person I really um, got to know before writing the book was Jeremy Siegel because he was one of my professors at, at Wharton. Uh, but all of the others, a few of them, I might have uh, bumped into um, at, at conferences. In, in fact, I think my my first conversation with Harry Markowitz at a, at a conference, um, this was back in 20, 2011, I think it was, 2012, uh, was when he asked me what was the direction to the washroom. So that was the, the extent of... Uh, <laughs> of my contact with them. But, but, but Andrew not only knew these people, but they knew Andrew and they respected him. And so that just opened up the doors. Yeah, that is, uh, that is a great opportunity. And thanks to Andrew for that. Yeah. Because they were obviously very forthcoming in your interviews as shows in the book. Um, it's hard to generalize, but what, what can you say about these luminaries in general? What did they have in common and then what differentiates them? And we'll get to the individuals in a second. Sure. Uh, I, I think uh, what they all had in common is brilliant minds. These are exceptionally brilliant people in, in different ways. And um, if we look at our interviewees, um, seven of them are academics, six of which have Nobel Prizes in, in, in economics. Um, and the three... Um, uh, practitioners, two of them have uh, have PhDs, and the other one who didn't, Jack Bogle, uh, who passed away in 2019, um, uh, as you probably know, was the founder of uh, a Vanguard uh, and developed the first mutual fund uh, to offer index funds. So these were just uh, people with brilliant minds who had a knack of, of looking at the world in, in a certain way. So um, that's certainly that, that, that was a common feature. What was interesting, a couple of themes that, that I think were, were some, some um, 
common features. Uh, it was very fascinating for us to see how many of them faced setbacks that that or near near setbacks that they were to overcome. Uh, for example, uh, Bill Sharp, who went on to uh, get a Nobel Prize in in economics. Um, he uh, was in grade school in, in California, and he failed grade four. And, and the primary reason why he failed grade four, he was uh, studying for a math test in the, in the days when you had to know the times tables. And he studied <laughs> the times well. tables. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he knew the times table up to 10 times 10, but didn't realize the, the test was going to be up to 12 times 12. <laughs> and because of that, he he failed grade four. And I mean, it's just it's just uh, hard to imagine these days. But but uh, that wasn't the only failure he had. Uh, his most famous uh, paper, um, which uh, he he developed, what's known as the capital asset pricing model, which is really a bedrock for how we think about the risk of uh, of, of firms. Um, he sent it out for publication and. Um, the process, the academic process, is, is you get a, a referee, a so-called blind referee, who uh, you don't know who it is. Uh, the paper was rejected, um, and the reason was that, uh, according to the referee, the assumptions that, that Sharp was using were so preposterous that all the subsequent <laughs> conclusions um, were uninteresting. So that was uh, that was the kind of feedback that that, that he got. Uh, so that was a failure, a uh, number of failures for for, for Bill Sharp, uh, Jack Bogle. Uh, this this original index fund that he came up with uh, was via an initial public offering, and um, he expected to raise 150 million dollars for this first index fund, and it was a total failure. Uh, it, it became known as Bogle's Folly. Uh, it attracted only $11.3 million. So um, the, the uh, advisors uh, said, well, do you want to just throw in the towel at this point? And, and, and he didn't. So, you know, there's just a couple of examples of, uh, of, of, some, of the, uh, some of the failures. Uh, another interesting theme was the role that serendipity played um, in terms of, of how these luminaries um, came to to make their mark. Uh, going back right to Harry Markowitz, um, Harry Markowitz, and, and this is something that I think every uh, every doctoral student can relate to. He was struggling to find a topic for his dissertation, so he went to see his his advisor to see if he could bounce some ideas off of him. And his uh, advisor was uh, was busy at the time, and so. Um, Harry was waiting in the ante room and struck up a conversation with another person who was was waiting in the ante room, who turned out to be a stockbroker. And as they were chatting, the stockbroker said, uh, "Why don't you do your dissertation uh, on the stock market?" Uh, and Harry knew nothing about the stock market, and and he brought this idea into his supervisor, and uh, and and that's how it got started. And and according to Harry Markowitz, this was the uh, best advice uh, a broker had ever given to him. <laughs> Another example of serendipity, uh, Bill Sharp. Uh, it, Bill Sharp started writing his thesis in the area uh, that doesn't sound too exciting to many of us, the area called transfer pricing, uh, the way companies um, price goods that, that, that are used by different divisions with, within a company. And he thought he had a pretty good thesis. He thought he was about halfway through, and, and he went to an expert in the field, and they said, um, sorry, um, I don't think you have a thesis here. I think you're, you're going to have to start all over on something else. And so uh, he was very depressed with that and, and, again, went to his supervisor and said, what am I going to do now? And the supervisor said, well, um, you you just uh, recently there was this seminar by this this fellow Harry Markowitz um, and, and you really liked uh, you really liked his work. Why don't we, and he, he's now at, at the Rand Corporation, which which Bill Sharp had some affiliation with. Uh, why don't I introduce you and and uh, we'll see if something's there. And, and again, the rest is uh, the, the rest is history. So case after case, just the the the, the serendipity. It, it it was amazing how these people ended up where where they were. I particularly liked what you said about setbacks because I have a CV or a resume and I've looked at a lot of CVs and resumes or, well, let me just concentrate on my own. 
when I look at my own CV or resume, I, the only thing I think is that is not the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> that is the farthest thing from the whole story. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Things can so, come together at the end, but but the path yeah, can be no, uh, it doesn't unusual. Have, yeah, it uh, you can't really find Marshall Poe in my resume or CV. <laughs> He's not really there. Um, so let's talk a little bit about these individuals. And the first one we'll talk about is obviously Markowitz. And I, I'd heard of him before. Uh, I, I've done a little digging on this myself. And Markowitz was kind of an amazing character. And he's credited with in, inventing, I think, modern portfolio theory. Can you talk a little bit about what uh, you learned from him? Sure. Sure. So, so his uh, his, his aha moment when, when he had picked this topic uh, of, of looking at the stock market and the perspective that he was taking was actually one from what's known as operations research and linear programming. So, so this was where he was trying to fit these these kind of models to to see if there was some kind of way to optimize looking at investing in stocks. And he was and since he had no background in investing, he was given a, a reading list of, of books to um to to look through um that that would help him understand the the whole uh investment world as of uh, as of the 1950s and one of the books was was a classic by uh, John Burr Williams um, um called the theory of uh, investment value and uh it it was a really important book and and really the precursor to a lot of Concepts that, uh, that 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 we know today, uh, and that are still uh, important. But as as um, as Markowitz was was reading this this book, uh, some of the assumptions that Williams uh, was making didn't seem to make sense um, because they didn't take into account how individual stocks moved relative to one another, and and so uh, if you didn't take into account this this whole notion of how stocks move relative to one another. Then, as Markowitz read it, the logical conclusion of Williams was that uh, you should only invest in one stock, and and that's the one stock that will give you the highest expected uh, re- return. And that didn't make sense to 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 Markowitz, and so he searched around in the University of Chicago Library and, and found a book on mathematical probability. To try to see what uh, what was the mathematics behind looking at the relationship among securities assets um, as they uh, as they um, have their uh, returns uh, throughout time, and 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 what he found was uh, this really important mathematical concept called covariance or or correlation, and mm-hmm. that takes into account how how securities. Uh, how securities um, um, move up and down relative to one, one another. And, and this was really the aha moment because it then occurred to Markowitz that that's what's really important is we shouldn't be looking at investing in that one stock that we think is going to do really well, but look at, at a portfolio of stocks and pick that portfolio that collectively as we would invest in in this portfolio of securities either has the highest expected return for a given level of risk or the least amount of risk for a given level of expected return. And so that's where Markowitz was the first to really develop some mathematics behind this to to show what uh, what what is sort of a, a, a common uh, uh, a common saying that we shouldn't put all our eggs in in, in one basket. Mm-hmm. And in fact, apparently, as Bill Sharp tells the story, um, at one point a reporter came up to uh, Markowitz and said, "Did you really get a Nobel Prize for saying that you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket?" And Markowitz's re- reply was yes, and then and then he walked away, and and, and the reporter was quite bewildered by that. Uh, that that's how how they were giving out uh, Nobel prizes. So anyway, that was that was the, the the big contribution of Markowitz is to get us to think systematically about the importance of diversification. We, we talk about a free lunch and, and the notion that there's no free lunch. Markowitz actually showed that there is a free lunch in the sense of by forming a portfolio of stocks, we can, we can get to a point where we ha- are... Uh, either higher expected return without taking on more risk, 
or lowering our, our risk for that particular level of expected return. So that was the major contribution of Barkwitz. So I think listeners, many listeners who listen to the New Books Network will understand this notion of covariance or positive or negative correlation. So for example, it's generally the case that when equities go way down, gold goes way up because people look for uh, uh, something, a different class of assets. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that still generally true? When equities go down, does gold go up? Uh, we, we could we could spend another. <laughs> yeah, I don't, never mind. Don't answer that question. That and... <laughs> We're not going to answer that question. Never mind. I'll, I'll, I'll give you my favorite my favorite answer in class, and 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 it's it depends. So we'll leave it at that. Yeah, right. That's great. Let's let's leave it at there. Yeah. Don't don't. Yeah. We're not giving financial advice. So let's go on to Bill Sharp. What what did you learn from him? Yeah. So so Bill Sharp really picked up where where uh, where Harry Markowitz uh, left off, and and. And Harry Markowitz became the de facto uh, supervisor of Bill Sharp's uh, of Bill Sharp's uh, thesis, um, and, and so Bill Sharp took um, took Markowitz's model and then really enhanced and, and expanded on it. So up to Markowitz, Markowitz was simply looking at forming portfolios among all risky assets, and Bill Sharp added one important wrinkle, and that's what if you could not only consider in your portfolio risky assets, but consider uh, as well one riskless asset. So think of it as a treasury bill or a treasury bond. Um, and, and if we could combine that with risky portfolios, what would be the implications of, of that? And, and in fact, what Bill Sharp w- was able to show, again, mathematically and, and, uh, and, and conclusively, was that among all the risky assets that, um, that Harry Markowitz said that we could consider and, and would be the ones that were so-called efficient uh, portfolios to consider, um, Bill Sharp said that there's one of those uh, risky portfolios that everybody would want to hold. And we call that the market portfolio. And, and this is really the, the genesis as well of the whole notion of, of index funds, which yeah, are trying, funds. To replicate, yeah. Yeah, trying to replicate investing in the market. So Markowitz uh, started with risky portfolios, and Bill Sharp said there's one risky portfolio, and that's the market portfolio. And, and what he was, uh, was able to show then is that if that's the case, then... Um, no one would would want to have want to hold anything except that market portfolio, and so his his model, his famous model known as the capital asset pricing model, then um, takes the step to to try to look at how do we price each individual security that's part of that overall market portfolio, and that's where he came up with he didn't give it the, this name but but it became known as as the beta of a stock, the riskiness of the stock not in and of its own, but relative to the market. And so what, what Bill Sharp was able to show is that the only risk that matters is the risk relative to the market. So in other words, it doesn't matter how risky a stock is if you were to only own that stock, because according to the capital asset pricing model, you shouldn't own one stock. You should own this whole portfolio, the market portfolio. And therefore, how these assets are priced should only depend on the uh, the market uh, the market risk yeah this is why uh, the person that manages my money actually it's a company is constantly telling me three to four percent marshall that's all you should ever expect three to four <laughs> percent <laughs> well depending on uh, depending on your asset mix uh, that yeah that is very reasonable very yeah. reasonable well let's move on to gene fama what did you learn from him so uh, Gene Fama is is an amazing individual um, who has consistently uh, put out um, uh, important uh, seminal pieces of, of research uh, in each of the last, I think, five or six uh, decades. So he's he's just an amazing, uh, amazing researcher. Um, most of his research focuses on empirical studies of uh, of, of stock prices, and uh, in fact, his um, some of his early research looked at uh, empirically testing Bill Sharp's capital asset pricing model. And Fama's early research um, provided support for, for the capital asset pr- 
pricing model. So that was, uh, that was quite, uh, quite important in terms of its findings. What's interesting about Plama is that um, as, uh, as he investigates and gets new data and, and has new ways of, of, of searching and, and testing, um, he, uh, he is willing to change his, his mind. Um, and years after, uh, years after providing support for the capital asset pricing model and Bill Sharp's um, key risk measure known as, known as beta, uh, he actually uh, uh, uncovered some research to suggest that actually uh, we need to go beyond just focusing on the market portfolio. That's not the whole story. There are other factors that drive stock prices rather than just looking at, at the market. And the two key additional factors that Fama and his, uh, his frequent co-author Ken French uncovered were looking at the importance of so-called value stocks versus growth stocks, and also looking at the importance of the performance of small stocks versus large stocks. And so taking into account these new factors, um, he concluded in, in, in a well-known interview with the New York Times that uh, beta is dead. And, and, and so basically, while Fama early, early on supported this empirically this capital asset pricing model, uh, he later helped to effectively kill the capital asset pricing model, or, or although it's been debatable whether the capital asset pricing model is, is really dead or not. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, that Fama is really known for is um, he coined this term, the efficient markets hypothesis. And the efficient market hypothesis says that uh, basically what you see is, is what you get. Prices fully and immediately reflect all relevant information. So this is sort of the quintessential um, Chicago perspective on on markets that they're that they're very that they're very efficient um, and so that's one of the things that that, that he's uh, he, he's known for um, the key takeaway I think from from what uh, our interviews with Fama uh, came uh, came we came away with is um, the market portfolio is still a very important Important portfolio to have as uh, as as part of your investments, but you might want to consider so-called value stocks and and smaller stocks and, and perhaps tilting toward those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this reminds me of another bit of financial advice about investing that I got, and that is from somebody I know who works in the industry, and uh, he said, in, in order to beat the stock market, you have to know something that somebody else doesn't know, and you have to be sure that everybody else is going to find out about it. And that's really hard. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That, that's that's good advice. Good luck with that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so let's move on to Jack Bogle. What did you learn from him? So Jack Bogle actually uh, he he, he uh, used as sort of a play on words of of, of uh, Gene Fama's efficient market hypothesis and coined the terms um, cost matters hypothesis. So for Bogle, um, in order for you to be successful, the key for him was to keep your costs down. And the most efficient way to keep your costs down is to invest in a low-cost index fund, such as uh, what Vanguard started. And, and so that's really uh, one, of the, one of the main takeaways from, from Jack Bogle. The other was um, something that, that, that uh, has uh, been referred to as uh, masterly inactivity. If you've heard of that phrase, it can apply to to, to different uh, to, to different things. Um, in the context of investing, it means uh, we have a tendency to do something uh, if uh, if if there is perhaps a, a a dip in the market or there's some kind of economic news. Our knee-jerk reaction might be, "Oh gosh, I, I've got to get out of uh, stocks. I've got to liquidate my portfolio." And and Jack's uh, one of his favorite uh, uh, phrases was, um, "If somebody tells you, if your broker tells you you've got to do something, then your reaction should be, don't do something, just stand there.'" And and so that's that's his <laughs> his key ad- advice. Um, basically, just uh, just just not reacting to the markets. Uh, invest in index funds and do so in a low cost way. Yeah, and this is why again more common sense financial wisdom from the people that manage my money, and that is, they tell me not really to watch the stock market. 
don't don't, don't look at it because you're likely to want to do something. <laughs> I, I think that's that's great advice, and uh, I, I think if you have uh, if if you have an app, um, get rid of that app uh, because you don't you <laughs> yeah. don't need to. Yeah, it's the you it's the need... opposite of a of a um, you know they have these apps now that will help you with mindfulness and things like that. It's the opposite yes. of it's an anxiety app. <laughs> exactly. There should be an app that when when you go to open it up, uh, it should perhaps say. Um, Sorry, you're only allowed to open this once a year, so uh, come back in 173 days. Yeah, I think that's right. So let's move on to Myron Scholes. What did Myron Scholes teach you? So Myron Scholes is the uh, co-creator, along with uh, the late Fisher Black, uh, of what's known as the uh, the Black Scholes option pricing model. In in fact, it's it's also known as the Black Scholes. Merton uh, option pricing model, and we'll talk about Bob Merton uh, perhaps uh, next. Um, options are a a form of uh, of derivative securities. Um, um, for example, if I buy a call option on a stock, uh, I have the option to buy that stock perhaps in the next three months, let's say, at a particular at a particular price. So if the stock goes up above this particular price, known as the strike price or the exercise price. Then, then I uh, I gain on the upside. If it doesn't reach that that particular threshold, then I lose whatever I invested. And, and what Black Scholes Black and Scholes did was was solve what what had been this this uh, uh, longstanding conundrum of of how to price these these call options. Um, and and so they came up with this mathematical formula, which which was actually based on a, a, a heat equation that, that uh, was developed uh, in a physics context. Um, and they created this, uh, this, this, um, this, this particular formula to solve this problem. But their contribution really extended way beyond um, this particular arcane, perhaps arcane formula. Um, their contribution really helped to develop this whole derivatives market, uh, which uh, has been used uh, perhaps for um, good and not so good purposes, uh, the good purposes in terms of risk management, the not so good, perhaps uh, excessive speculation. Um, but they really, uh, they really helped us in terms of, uh, in, in terms of this whole notion of risk management. And, and I think that was the big takeaway from our discussions uh, with, with Myron Scholes is that to get us thinking about our perfect portfolio, we should be thinking uh, we should be thinking beyond expected returns and and think about risk. And, and risk can be two-sided. Um, there's the downside risk and then there's the upside risk, uh, the so-called tail risks. And, and so what you want to do is is to try to decrease the amount of downside risk you have in your portfolio and potentially increase uh, the upside risk in your portfolio. One thing, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's very interesting because these uh, instruments really expand the time horizon of portfolios, and that, and therefore they kind of indemnify people in a way. When you have the ability to buy a stock at a certain price or sell it at a certain price, that that always makes me feel very comfortable. Um, yes. You mentioned Bob Merton. Let's go on to him. Yeah. So it, it, what's interesting is that at the same time, Black and and Scholes were were working on this uh, on this race. To develop uh, a formula for uh, for the pricing of, of call options, Bob Merton was was doing the same, and so it was it was almost like a friendly rivalry, um, and 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 they were both at the same institution, and so uh, you didn't necessarily tell the other party everything that, that 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 you were working on, but you did share some you did share some ideas, and in fact, um, one of the big breakthroughs um, that that Black and Scholes had in terms of the development of their model came from Bob Merton. Um, they were having this this discussion. It was about how do you model and what role does does risk play in terms of uh, in terms of these modeling. And um, Black and Scholes were looking at it in in one particular way, and and Bob Merton said, "No, that can't be right. That can't be right." So let me <laughs> let me take a look at this. Um, and, and based on some research that that he had been doing. He looked at it in, in a particular way, and he said, 
you know, I, I, he apparently called Myron Scholes uh, one weekend and said, well, you know what, you, you and Black are right, but you're right for the wrong reason. And here's the here's the wrong reason. And so this was a key piece to to the Black Scholes uh, option pricing model. So um, that's why, uh, unfortunately, Fisher Black passed away, uh, but but both Myron Scholes and Bob Merton received were co-recipients in the same year of the Nobel Prize in, in economics. So what we take away from Bob Merton is a way of thinking about your portfolio and, and what that perfect portfolio really would be, would be one that, that if, if in an ideal world, you had enough assets that you could invest them in some kind of risk-free instrument so that the, the income that you could derive from those, uh, that risk-free uh, instrument would provide you with all of the income that you desire, let's say, post-retirement. That would be your perfect portfolio. And the closest thing that we have to that is what's known as TIPS or um, uh, a, a Treasury uh, Inflation Protected Securities uh, issued by, uh, issued by uh, the, the government. Um, so this is where we should be thinking about starting with a, a riskless portfolio and then only taking on risks such as investing in bonds and, and stocks to the extent that you need that in terms of your uh, your your portfolio goals. Yeah, this uh, reminds me of a certain, uh, I, we're, we're almost talking about wisdom now, life wisdom, mm-hmm. because what mm-hmm. you ultimately need is enough. <laughs> you know, you, that's what you need. You have to decide how much enough is. That's your first step. Absolutely. But that's Absolutely. what you need, enough. <laughs> exactly. So, so optimizing and maximizing in this other stuff, that way madness lies. You need to yes. concentrate on enough. <laughs> so, <Absolutely. laughs> all right, let's move on to Marty uh, Leibowitz. What did you learn from him? So he, he, Marty had an interesting uh, interesting background in terms of where 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 he started. Um, he, he was actually uh, working in a, a rug manufacturer. Um, of course he was. And... and <laughs> I, I call it uh, rugs to riches is, is really where he uh, really where he came from. Um, uh, ended up uh, through some contacts uh, with his father-in-law at Solomon Brothers, which uh, at the time was uh, a, a Wall Street firm known for its trading in, in bonds. And um, Leibowitz had a, a mathematical background um, and a PhD uh, in, in, in the area. And um, actually teamed up with his father-in-law to to write a classic uh, book on on helping us to understand bonds called Inside the Yield Book. Um, the Yield Book at the time was it was a big thick telephone like book. Um, if uh, if your listeners can picture what a yeah telephone remember book what a telephone like. book looked like. I don't think my kids <laughs> a, know a what big, that is. Thick, <laughs> yeah, a, a, a big thick book. Uh, let's put it that way. Um, that that uh, you could look up the um, the price of a bond based on things like its yield and its uh, and, and its coupon and and actually interesting story in terms of how Leibowitz made his mark at at Solon Brothers uh, at the time I think it was the late late 1960s early 1970s um, interest rates unexpectedly um, increased. To the point that uh, interest rates were higher than than you could look up in in this in this yield book, and where uh, Leibowitz made his mark is uh, he had a desk on the trading floor at Solomon Brothers, and he had access to uh, to an IBM um, time sharing uh, computer. And, and he was able to create what was really if, the if first... If anybody knows what that is anymore. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Time-sharing computer. He, he, he was able to create um, the first um, yield yield calculator. There's another uh, another term uh, that, that we would use in, in Excel spreadsheets now. Um, right. And so he became popular that way. So um, his contribution is really, I think, uh, twofold. One is, is to help us to think about the portfolio, perfect portfolio to contain assets beyond, uh, beyond equities, and in particular to think about uh, bonds. Um, and, and he was really able to show how uh, important and, and ways to think about the riskiness of, of bonds. The other contribution um, and, and a key takeaway from our discussions uh, with, with Marty 
Uh, he uh, borrowed a, a phrase uh, from Cliff Asnes, who is the co-founder of AQR, uh, a hedge fund. Um, and, and the term is dragon risk. And dragon risk refers to, um, and perhaps you as a historian might, might recognize the, the old maps uh, that, uh, that, yeah. that were developed. Um, and, and the map makers, if, they, if there was a part of the globe that hadn't been explored, um, they would sometimes um, yes, they would um, put dragons. Need a picture of a of a dragon <laughs> and say, "There be dragons." I, I don't yep. I don't know what's beyond this, but there be dragons. So yep. watch out. And and so um, Leibowitz's message was really um, be aware of of dragon risk. Invest to the comfort of the amount of risk that you're taking on, and don't take on more risk than you're comfortable with. Yeah, this is a very good point as well. And as a historian, you know, when I hear people in finance talk about no risk assets, I just want to say there is no such thing <laughs> as a no risk asset. It's always at risk. It may be very low, but it's always at risk. So I point I, well uh, point well taken. Absolutely. Yeah, I tip my hat to that. Let's move on to Bob Schiller. He's a pretty well known figure. I've actually talked to him. What did oh, you learn from him? Yeah. Excellent. So, so what, what, what's interesting is, uh, and, and I think fascinating, is that Bob Schiller received, uh, was the uh, co-recipient of the Nobel Prize uh, at the same time that, that Fama received the Nobel Prize, as well as another academic, uh, Lars Hansen, who uh, was uh, known for developing econometric techniques. But um, Fama and Schiller are really two ends of, of a spectrum in terms of how they view markets, with Fama viewing markets as being very efficient and Schiller um, being a, a so-called behavior economist and, and really helping us to understand and be mindful of mispricings that can occur in, uh, in, in uh, markets. And, and his seminal work, uh, which was very controversial at the time, was showing that that um, if we look at at the movement in stock prices, which should be reflective of expected cash flows, such as the dividends that you're going to receive, uh, he was able to show that stock prices uh, were much too volatile to be justified by the subsequent changes in in dividends, suggesting that that markets are are not always efficient. So this was really a, a controversial area. Um, but it helped us to expand our, our thinking um, beyond this this whole notion of uh, of, of efficient markets. Fama and, and Schiller have had um, tremendous debates over this whole notion of bubbles. Do bubble do bubbles exist? Um, and uh, I, I think uh, Schiller tells the story of of, uh, of Fama referring to bubbles as that that nefarious term. He he doesn't even want to say the word uh, bubbles because he he doesn't believe in in, in bubbles. Uh, another important contribution that that Bob Schiller has made, uh, along with uh, uh, his co-author at the time, John Campbell, was um, coming up with with a metric to give us a sense of whether markets, be it U.S. markets or or uh, European markets, are are overvalued or are undervalued. And it became known as the the CAPE, uh, the, the the CAPE model, as uh, an acronym standing for cyclically adjusted price earnings um, um, models. Um, basically, looking at at how much at a particular point in time, how much are will investors willing to pay for stocks in in aggregate relative to uh, some normalized measure of their their earnings. Mm -hmm. So when uh, markets might be overvalued would be in a case when this CAPE uh, index or this CAPE measure is very, very much uh, higher than what we would uh, tend to see historically. And in fact, uh, what uh, Bob Schiller has been saying, I think, for quite a number of years is, is that where this CAPE measure is now in the U.S. And, and in other countries is actually at a historically uh, high level. So uh, he would be more cautious and, and say that we should consider looking at uh, globally investing where that uh, CAPE index might be lower. I find all this fascinating. I have a friend who is a money manager. Uh manages about $3 billion. I don't know how he sleeps at night because it's other people's money, but he does. 
And one of the things he's always on about is precisely this, that you see companies, equities that are have tremendous valuations, but they have crappy cash flow. They don't pay <laughs> dividends. And mm-hmm. to him, anything beyond the dividend is speculation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the measure of a company is the dividend it will pay you. Well, and you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and here with, with, with Schiller, we were talking about a measure of the market as a whole, but we can bring it down to the individual stock level and get a sense of when a stock may or may not be overvalued. Yeah, I, I don't know the, the ins and outs of this, but he has basically built a career by saying that sentence, that the dividend should tell you every, almost everything you need to know about the company. Um, <laughs> good for him. So let's move on to Charlie Ellis. I've not heard of Ellis. So can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah. So, so um, uh, Charlie Ellis, uh, he, he's been referred to as, uh, as the wisest man on, on Wall Street. Um, a very thoughtful individual, started a very successful um, a consulting firm known as uh, Greenwich Associates. Uh, he, his his uh, really claim to fame uh, was an article he wrote in uh, in the 1970s that that really caused um, professionals uh, in the industry to question this whole active investing approach um, that that was uh, very common. And so the the timing was actually perfect with Jack Bogle, uh, and Jack Bogle picked up on on some of the work that that Ellis had had done. Um, as, as uh, a great example of why index investing uh, really, uh, really uh, paid off. And the article uh, that, that he wrote uh, in 1975, and, and it eventually became a, a book, was called Winning the Loser's Game. Um, and, and the analogy here is one to, uh, one to tennis. Um, and, and actually it was inspired by uh, a book by a colorful individual, Simon Rammel, Called extraordinary tennis for the ordinary tennis player, and the whole premise—the the whole premise of, of the book—is that if you and I are, are amateur tennis players, then we we shouldn't play the game uh, thinking that we're that we are uh, that we are professionals and and experts because we'll end up losing. We'll have too many unforced errors. Uh, we'll 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 just be making all kinds of mistakes. So as amateurs, the game of tennis that you should be playing is not to win, but rather don't lose. So just play a very conservative game. Let the opponent make the unforced errors. And Ellis thought that this was a a tremendous analogy for the investment industry. As individuals, we shouldn't try to act like the professionals because we're not professionals. And, and so, therefore, the key implication was that, that you should consider passive investing rather than active investing or investing in, in index funds. And so, Alice was really the first insider to, to sort of raise the flag and, and say, hey, you know, as an industry, we might have this all wrong and, and, and we should be considering alternative ways that will help uh, our, our clients, our investors uh, do better. I find this very wise, and it's more or less the philosophy that uh, I have been taught, and, and that is precisely that if you find yourself picking stocks, you have made a mistake. There is something mm-hmm. that's deeply gone; it has gone totally south because you don't know about these companies, and so the idea that you can somehow predict what's going to happen with them is lunacy. So, I, I, yeah, I, I think Charlie Ellis is the wisest man on Wall Street. Absolutely. So. Uh, finally, uh, Jeremy uh, Siegel. What did you learn from him? So, so I think we can sum it up with the with the title of his book, uh, bestseller, "Stocks for the Long Run." And and uh, Jeremy was was uh, really known for looking systematically and and carefully at uh, at the performance of stocks relative to bonds and treasury bills and 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 gold and currencies. Uh, to show that that over a very long period, and we're talking century, uh, century plus, uh, and in particular in a U.S. context, uh, stocks continue to perform um, consistently well, providing uh, great returns relative to uh, relative to risk exposure. And 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 what was fascinating that 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 we learned from uh, Siegel is that in fact. Well, certainly over a short period, let's say it's, it's a year or, or a month, um, 
stocks are, are much more volatile than, let's say, investing in government bonds. As you extend that horizon out to 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, in fact, investing in stocks um, can be potentially less risky than investing in other asset classes such as such as bonds. So he's a big proponent that within our perfect portfolio, we should certainly make sure that uh, that that it it has a lot of equities to the extent that we are prepared to take on uh, equity risk. Yeah, I find this very appealing as well. I uh, I've owned five houses in my life um, for good or ill. And so I know a little bit about the uh, real estate market. And so when I hear people say that they're going to buy a house in order to make money, (laughs) 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 because housing prices always go up, right? Relative to everything else. I'm like, not really. (laughs) Because when you do, when you do the numbers, they go up about what you would expect them to go up. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And and, and actually Bob, Bob Schiller was, was one around 2006 to raise the alarm of, uh, of the U S real estate market. Uh, yeah, this, there's a, so much speculation in the real estate market. I don't really understand it. I, 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 I it's a very curious market um, because if you do do the numbers, uh, housing prices go up uh, essentially the way all the other assets go up. Um, there are some major areas, I guess I would say, or periods in which you do see this kind of Schiller-esque irrational exuberance, and those are always dangerous. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I, and also, it has to do with the fact that a house is something you live in. At least, at least mm-hmm. the ones that I owned, I lived in. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So was there anything about these luminaries that really surprised you? Did you gain any, like, wow, that's amazing. What's fascinating is that um, while while Bill Sharp put put all of the importance on on this market portfolio, uh, Harry Markowitz didn't really see anything special about the market portfolio. He was all about risk and return trade-offs, but nothing special about the uh, about the market portfolio itself, uh, so that was surprising. I, I think uh, the way that that Fama has adapted over over the years is is somewhat surprising. Uh, again, being initially a big defender of the capital asset pricing model, and then uh, some would argue he he killed the capital asset pricing model. Um, but a true believer in in um, the scientific method and and focusing on uh, on the evidence. Um, one other thing uh, in in Andrew's conversation with, uh, with with Jack Bogle that that was surprising was that uh, in an endowment fund that uh, Jack uh, oversaw, um, he actually advocated for putting some gold in in that portfolio. So somebody mm-hmm. who invented the uh, index fund, the mutual <laughs> index fund, actually was advocating for a bit of gold. So that was uh, surprising. Yeah. Um- so we're coming up to the end of our interview, and I, I wondered if um, you could tell listeners what you think the perfect portfolio is and how they can build their own. Again, we're not giving financial advice here. Sure, but go absolutely, ahead. absolutely. So, so first of all, I, I, again, uh, my my answer that I think I gave you earlier, uh, it depends. Uh, the the analogy we use is it's sort of a health health analogy uh, analogy. You know, it, um, how do I uh, how do I stay healthy? Might be the question, and the answer isn't one dimensional. It might be well, you need to exercise, you need to diet. Uh, there could be medications, nutritional supplements, and and so it's not one size fits all when it comes to being healthy. And the same goes for uh, in investing. Um, what we do in our book is after we focus on the, the, the wisdom of each of the luminaries, in our last chapter, we try to put everything all, all together. And, and so what we come up with are a number of principles that I think regardless of what your portfolio is going to look like, there are a number of things that, that, that you need to do. Uh, for example, um, you need to know what your goals are. We talked about this a, a little bit, bit earlier, uh, starting with, with your current and, and your, your future goals. You have to come up with some kind of investment philosophy. And, and that's where we lead it, leave it to the readers uh, because Fama and, and Schiller, for example, have very different investment philosophies, but you've got to develop a particular investment philosophy. You have to decide what kind of assets are you prepared to, to own and, and you have to have some kind of sense of what the current environment looks like. We actually, um, in, in the book, we pre- present uh, a, a very simple um, uh, 
a questionnaire, four questions, uh, self-assessment. We also on on our website, which is the the same name as uh, as the book. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful. In pursuit of the perfect portfolio dot dot com, um, uh, listeners can can go to that site and and do a, a simple a simple test that puts you in in a particular category. And the test simply asks, uh, are you willing to take on a lot of risk or not a lot of risk? Do you have a lot of income or not a lot of income? Uh, do you tend to spend a lot or not? Do you assess that we are in an expansion or, or a recession? And by answering those four questions, then that can give you a path to the perfect portfolio. Again, not giving uh, financial advice. Um, but for example, if, uh, if, if you are very risk averse, and you tend to spend a lot, but you don't have a lot of income, and it's in a recession, then um, the path to the perfect portfolio is you need help. You need to see a financial <laughs> advisor, yeah. um, and, and and you've got to work through some ways to spend less or, or, or uh, earn more or have a rethink in terms of what your, uh, what your uh, uh, assessment and tolerance for risk is, is going to be. So... The perfect portfolio really comes out from all of this self-assessment and and the perfect portfolio then going back to what your goals are really depends on what kind of return do you need to achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. So, um, so going back to your comment that, uh, that, that your advisor tells you, you should only expect 3%, let's say uh, that, that depends on that will then determine what kind of mix of assets you need to hold, the mix between, let's say, equity and, and bonds. So if, uh, if you, each you individual... You won't be surprised to learn that I'm pretty deep in bonds. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, and that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, no, as well. Me. <laughs> so, so that's where your, your perfect portfolio is going to differ from some, someone else um, based on, on all of these different factors that, uh, that, that we talked about. So again, the short answer is, uh, is it depends, but you want to think about it in a systematic way. And we hope our book gives, uh, gives uh, listeners and, and readers um, a framework uh, for uh, a way to develop an investment philosophy and a process that will hopefully put you on a path to your perfect portfolio. Yeah, I really liked what you said, because the, the very first step, at least in my experience, is this self-assessment. And you really have to understand yourself well and be totally honest with yourself about the kind of person you are and what you expect. It is not the place for fantasies about what you might do. You have to go on historical data about the kind of person you have been. And that will give you a pretty good guide. That's hard work because Absolutely. we all have these asp crazy aspirations. Like I'm going to retire in the Caribbean. Well, I've never been to the Caribbean. I don't know anything about the Caribbean, but I hear other people go to the Caribbean and I hear it's great and <laughs> I'm going there. <laughs> well, you're not going exactly. there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so you really need to do some hard work and kind of understand exactly what you need, what is enough for you. And of course this has changed over time. And so, uh, a uh, question is, how has the perfect portfolio evolved over time? Because I can imagine, again, as a historian, you know, we're, we're kind of past the stage at which, which investors, well, people such as myself, I'm not really an investor, but I have assets. I don't pick stocks. There was a time when, mm -hmm. I don't know, my great grandfather might have done this, uh, mm -hmm. but, but we don't do that anymore. So how, what are there historical trends in the way the per portfolio is configured now? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, going back to some of the luminaries we, we talked about um, with Harry Markowitz, um, the perfect portfolio was just something that was diversified. When Bill Sharp came along, then the perfect por portfolio was this market portfolio, just buy everything in proportion to its, its, uh, its market value. With Gene Fama, it's more nuanced that, that you still want to be diversified. The market portfolio is is important, um, but we we may want to look for value stocks, which over the long run, not necessarily in the last 10 years even, but over the longer run, have done better than so-called growth stocks and small stocks have, have outperformed uh, large stocks. So it, it's really something that, that evolves. And so it, it's important to uh, to be aware of these evolutions. And, and actually, uh, my co-author, Andrew Lowe, uh, wrote uh, a, a very important book uh, a few years ago 
uh, called uh, adaptive markets, and and really, the, I think that's that's the theme that that what he tried to do in in his book is and, and his theory, um, the adaptive markets hypothesis, was to say the efficient market hypothesis that Fama came up with. It may not be wrong per se, but but it it may be incomplete, and so we have to look at uh, look at things really from. Uh, an ecological lens or an evolutionary biology lens, um, and and uh, markets adapt. What our expected returns are at one point in time may be different in a different kind of environment, um, and so the perfect portfolio we expect will continue to evolve. I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, one change that I have seen in my lifetime, although I didn't pay attention, I'm told this is true. You know, it used to be the case when people invested in stocks, at least I think it did, is that dividends were an extraordinarily important part of the upside. But now, I think in, in many people's portfolios, it's equity growth. They're not interested in month-to-month or quarter-to-quarter, year-to-year returns. And that's a huge change. I think change. you're absolutely right. Yeah, that is an enormous right. change because you're not mm-hmm. seeing any of that money until you sell the stock. Uh, right. and, and wrapping your mind around that is kind of difficult. <laughs> Absolutely. It is for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, I want to say it's been really a, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, we've been talking to Steve Forster about his book, In Pursuit of the Perfect Portfolio, the stories, voices, and key insights of pioneers who shaped the way we invest and I invest. He co-authored the book with Andrew Lowe, who we didn't get to talk to today, unfortunately. The book is out from Princeton University Press right now, uh, August 2021. Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure, Marshall.